Hello and welcome to The Bunker with me, Andrew Harrison. It's the economy, stupid. Bill Clinton's campaign director, James Carville, coined that ringing phrase as part of Clinton's successful bid for the presidency in 1992. And ever since, it's been held up as a model of the brutal clarity of thought required to win power. The Clinton campaign used the American recession of 1992 to undermine George H.W. Bush and ultimately make him a one-term president. Could Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves pull off a similar electoral feat here? We've entered an election year and Britain's economy is a mess, with GDP shrinking unexpectedly in December and a British recession possibly on the cards. So what do you need to know about the economy in 2024? Just before Christmas, I spoke to Giles Wilkes, Senior Fellow at the Institute for Government, former Special Advisor to Theresa May and Vince Cable, and friend of the podcast, to discover the five things you really need to know about the economy in 2024. Giles Wilkes, 2024 is going to be an election year, even if Rishi Sunak holds on to the bitter end and doesn't go to the country till January 2025, we'll still be campaigning all year long. Three of his much-vaunted five pledges are related intimately to the economy. That's halving inflation, growing the economy and reducing the national debt. So what we've done is we've broken the new year in the economy down into five key areas. And number five is the economy as it relates to the election. Um, Tax cuts. Conservatives believe that tax cuts win elections. Mm. Can they really produce tax cuts in time for an election? And how will they fund them when they've just done the big giveaway on national insurance? Well, if I was advising a Conservative, and I'm very glad to say I'm not, I would say, look, tax cuts don't win elections. You had a wonderful moment for you in 1992 where Labour being honest about raising taxes to pay for stuff probably cost them the election. And that election has now overshadowed every subsequent one ever since. Nobody's ever honest about the fact that we need to raise taxes to pay for things as a result. But promising tax cuts to win in elections, I don't think it has a particularly great record recently. And I think right now, if you ask the public on the whole, what's the biggest problems, they would say underfunded public services. And so they look at tax cuts with a slightly sceptical eye, particularly after the experiment of Liz Truss about 15 months ago, where she provided a whole bunch of them and the markets absolutely swooned. And they immediately had to be reversed by Jeremy Hunt. So, yeah, they are going to try and offer more tax cuts, partly because, well, for two reasons. One, it makes it really difficult for a cautious Labour Party to say, no, we don't believe in that, because the posters then write themselves. So it's got a tactical advantage. But two, it makes things hard for Labour when they come in, because Labour then have to deal with an even bigger deficit in the public services, a bigger funding deficit, because the Conservatives have just cut some taxes. So my guess is they're going to follow up what they did in the autumn with something in income tax or inheritance tax, cost another £10 billion. The OBR, the government's auditors, as it were, of, of those fiscal numbers, are going to go puce, trying to say as politely as they can, these numbers are not credible, but won't be able to say it fully. And and then Rachel Reeves in about a year's time will have a hell of a job trying to fix it. Right. Um, the full budget is usually in March. Yep. And that kind of fits one of the projected timetables, which is local elections on the 4th of May mm-hmm. to kind of test the water for how the country is reacting to the national insurance cuts this in, in the autumn of 2023. Yep. And then the next round of tax cuts from a budget in March. Do you think that timetable is likely to stay on track? I I don't know how the May bit works for them, because suppose, as everyone would currently expect, May is a total disaster, and they lose 
thousands of councillors. They lose a lot of their sort of ground forces, but they also get sent the signal that the people don't want them. What's their response? I mean, what's their course correction opportunity in the like, four or five months they've then got left? So they, they obviously would love everybody to know about the national insurance tax cut, which is coming in in a few weeks' time. They've They've brought it in extra quickly. Normally, it would come in at the end of the financial year in April. And they'd love to be able to sort of social media blitz that and say, look how much money we put back in your pockets. But if I'm correct about my earlier sort of scepticism about this, they won't notice anything particularly electorally because voters on the whole are kind of sceptical about this and have sort of made up their mind that they think it's time for a change. So so then they'll try it again and they'll probably get the same effect again. And then I don't really know what their course correction is. I mean, if you believe the betting markets, there's a one in six, seven chance that they try and replace Rishi Sunak and look like a total clown show. Mm. But I, I don't really know what they're, how, how it could be an information gathering exercise when they don't have an action to respond to. Yeah, it's like you're stuck with an October date no matter what, whether yeah. the news is good or bad. Let's talk a bit about the three of the five pledges that are explicitly yeah. about about the economy. The others are, uh, you know, stop the small boats and so forth. Um, Sunak has absolutely pinned his fortunes to the idea that he would halve inflation, grow the economy and reduce the national debt. Let's mm. talk about inflation. Yeah. Inflation has halved itself. Yes. And it? it was almost bound to because you can't keep seeing what we saw in gas prices that happened in 2022 and then sort of feeds through to all of our energy bills. It can't keep happening. So a lot of it was going to fall out naturally as the horizon passed. So I mean, inflation has fallen to, what, 4 4.5%, which yeah. is still well above normal target. Yeah, the 2% target, yeah. which is supposed to be where we stay, yeah. isn't going to be achieved till the end of 2025. Yeah, as far as the Bank of England expects. And the Bank of England is expecting to keep relatively tight policy, in other words, expensive higher interest rates and mortgage rates in order to achieve that. So the really important judgment the Bank of England has made is, yeah, we can hit that 2% inflation target, which is the really important one, but we're going to have to kind of slow the economy almost to zero to achieve it, because otherwise everybody's going to be out there asking for wage rises and driving inflation back up again. Which is in direct conflict with the other pledge to yeah. grow the economy. And, yeah. you know, the economy always grows, usually grows, but it didn't grow at all between July and September. Um, yeah. The OBR has raised its forecast for growth in 2023 to 0.6%, yeah. but then it's cut its forecast sharply for the next two years. So is the economy actually growing? I mean, let's be grim for a little while. The Bank of England controls the demand side of the economy, how much spending we're allowed each year. And it looks at how much the economy can grow without inflation to make that judgment. Now, what's happened as a result of the post-COVID shocks and Brexit and underinvestment and bad management of the economy and bad luck is that that sustainable speed limit of the economy has fallen and fallen and fallen year after year after year. And what the OBR has effectively judged is, you know what, we've grown a little more than we thought when we revised GDP a couple of years ago. We came out of the pandemic a little better. But all that means is our potential to grow in future has dropped. In other words, we're closer to the limit. We can't find the labour, the investment. And so because the economy is doing so badly, the Bank of England is forced to keep us at that stagnant level. And that's the grimmest of all signs, that the Bank of England is saying, this is as good as you get. And we have to we have to do some really difficult things like boost investment or improve skills, you know, these really long-term yeah. stuff in order to get that number up again. The stuff that governments class as important but boring and therefore yeah. don't want to talk about. So have we reached a point at which growing the economy significantly is in itself inflationary? Yeah, that's what the Bank of England is apparently 
acting like it believes, at least for the next year or two. Remember the sort of effect of what happened in the last uh, couple of years. I mean, the energy shock was enormous. Yeah. And the Bank of England is probably erring on the cautious side because the inflation genie once out is really difficult to put back. So they're probably saying, well, we better aim low than high. And you could, and maybe, you know, maybe things will turn up. Maybe just replacing a Brexit government with a slightly more sane one that's able to stick to long-term plans and suddenly everything picks up a bit more. But yeah, right now, the judgment of both the OBR and the Bank of England is our speed limit is lower. So what would, it, what would the growth rate be for a country like ours that you would describe as, as, as healthy or, or aspirational? I think if we got 2% a year, if by the second half of the next government's term, we were like sustainably going along at 2% a year, that would be a pleasant surprise for everybody. At the same time, it's the sort of thing we've been thinking we should be aiming back for since, I guess, 2015. And then we got hit by Brexit, hit by COVID, hit by Ukraine, hit by the bad recovery from COVID. Once we got through all of that and had a stable government, a stable backdrop, no bad shocks, 2% a year would be pretty good. And then everyone could be expecting wage growth of like 2 2.5% a year. And, you know, that would feel like happy days. What are the chances of it happening? I reckon... By the first term of a Labour government, by the end, it's possible if okay. they don't get hit by bad luck. The trouble is, I mean, I'm not a geopolitical expert by any means, but, you know, the energy shocks in particular, it looks like those those aren't going away. And maybe we haven't appreciated how much our growth for like decades has been driven by cheap, abundant gas and oil. And so having to do the energy transition just means we're going to have a lot more challenges. So it might well be that we do grow like that, but our consumption doesn't because we're having to set aside a lot of our savings to do that green transition. So it might be that the cost of living, which I know you wanted to talk about as well, it doesn't feel like our living standards are improving at 2% because we've got to do all those important things for the future. third of the economic pledges from Sunak that are going to determine campaigning around the economy this year is that the government will reduce the national debt. Yeah. Now, this is hugely politically potent. And at the same time, most of us only have a, really, a sketchy yeah. idea of what it means and why it matters. So can you explain, firstly, to an idiot, me, why the national debt is so important and where Britain kind of is now in, in the kind of cycle of managing it? Okay, why is the debt important? Well, I mean... For a start, debt is not evil in itself. Debt is a fantastic invention. I mean, it's great to be able to pull money forward from the future, which is what debt does. Yeah. Being able to borrow against the future and do great things, be that fund public services, invest in infrastructure, that's fantastic. And if we hadn't invented it, we'd be much poorer. So debt is a dirty word, no. And sometimes that has been used too much to stop us being able to construct the state we want, which is a great pity. Why is too high debt a real problem? Well, I mean, I think the circumstances we're in right now are a really good illustration of it. When you've got a really high amount of debt and its maturity is short, in other words, every few years you've got to refinance it. You haven't borrowed for like 30, 40, 50 years. You can just sit back and relax and sort of just deal with that in a stable, predictable way. If you're always worried about what the interest rate you're going to have to refinance on is going to be, now that is really... Tricky, particularly when interest rates are wanging around a lot, to, to use a technical term from the last couple of years. Now, right now, because not only have we issued a lot of government bonds, but we've done a lot of what's quantitative easing. In other words, we've got the Bank of England to buy a lot of those bonds, and now they're selling them back. The current interest rate matters an awful lot. Now... If the, it looks like the government isn't going to be paying back the debt, in other words, it isn't controlling it like Rishi Sunak promised, then the markets start worrying that 
they're going to have to refinance more and more and more and charge a higher and higher interest rate. And then the burden of interest payments becomes really, really significant. And the truth is, those interest payments for this government have gone from figures around 40 billion to sort of 80, 90 billion, which is a huge difference. I mean, it's the difference of the Department for Education sized amount of spending every year on interest. So I guess the short answer is if you allow debt to get out of control, the dynamics take over, your interest payments take over, and the threat is either you have to cut spending and raise taxes to deal with it, or inflation gets unleashed. And either of those are particularly bad for pretty normal people. So, yeah, it can be a problem. And these circumstances are close to their worst. Yeah. So how does that translate then into the politicking we're going to see in 2024? Because we've heard Sunak talk about reducing the national debt and people go, oh, national debt, shock, horror, without really fully understanding what it is. How do you think it's likely to be kind of deployed in in the campaign that runs through the next year? I think it's going to turn into the language of tough choices. In other words, a bit like the mid-70s where Jim Callaghan as Prime Minister to a Labour conference audience said, I have to tell you frankly, you cannot spend your way out of this recession. In other words, you don't have the resources to do everything you want and politicians have to turn around and say, make a choice. Do you want this? Do you want that? Are you going to accept this tax rise to fund this thing or are you going to accept this cut? So that's the ultimate meaning of it. Um, In a sense, um, that's as bad for the Tories as it is for Labour because the Tories want to promise tax cuts that just aren't affordable. So I think ultimately it turns into a, a difficult conversation with the voters about not being able to get everything they want. Well, that was point five, the economy as it relates to the election. Point four, as you just hinted, the cost of living, because it's been the determinant of 2022 and 2023. You know, we've been through circumstances that few of us have seen in, in 30 years. Is the cost of living going to ease in 2024? The past couple of years have probably been as bad for the cost of living as we've had since, I don't know, the period of rationing. So I don't think we're going to have a repeat of that. I think even if we did get the sort of gas price spike we got in 2022, we're probably more insulated from it with sort of alternative sources of supply that 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 will not come again. So as far as I can see, we're not going to face that kind of monster hit, but we're not going to recover necessarily to the levels we were expecting before, um, unless some sort of positive shocks come along the other way. And some of the things we've had to do in order to deal with inflation, in particular, interest rates and mortgages going up, those are still yet to come through because people come off their fixed term mortgages in a sort of staggered way. And a lot of people are still enjoying the fixes they got a few years ago. So I think there's still a few shocks to come, but they won't be as evenly distributed as before. It's going to be the one or two million people guessing who've still got a mortgage increase to come along. So it's not going to be very easy times at all, particularly if the next government it kind of accepts the truth of it and says, look, we have to raise taxes to pay for underfunded public services, to, to settle public sector pay disputes and so on. And that might then hit people's copybook immediately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, the things that have driven the cost of living, as well as the fuel shock that you talked about, there's also the cost of imports, both during COVID and afterwards as people shifted to goods rather than services, yeah. which is a big change. And the collapse in the available workforce. Yes, which was a real shock. I mean, I remember at the beginning of 
the pandemic, we were all worried about spiraling unemployment. I mean, the, the furlough scheme was immensely welcomed because everyone just thought, well, who's going to want to hire anyone in these circumstances? I was personally really surprised when my, my, my eldest was able to just walk out of the door and get jobs immediately. And nobody really saw that coming. So in a sense, yeah, that's a problem for the economy. Not enough workers to do really important things. But it's great that you see the shift of power from capital towards labour and people can now ask for higher pay rises and ask for better rights. It shifts us towards, a, in a sense, a healthier situation where companies are thinking, what can I do to keep this worker? What can I do to make it really good work? What can I do to invest to make the worker more productive? I mean, that's the sort of environment that maybe leads to more productivity gains in the long run as people sit down and think, I'm not going to buy and sell labour like it's a commodity. I'm going to try and work to make it as productive and happy as possible. So yeah, it's a problem for short-term inflation management, but it's not a bad thing, I think, for the shape of the economy going forward. Yeah, because we have this sort of double-edged, almost contradictory argument that Brexit means less cheap labour, means better wages, means better jobs for British employees. But by the way, beware wage inflation. Yeah. Enough with your pay demands. It's like, well, make your mind up. What would you like? Yeah, I mean, there was, it was, can you remember that time when Johnson was, about a couple of years ago, when he still looked like he was securely in power and he was going on about labour shortages being a great thing, as if this was a deliberate tool of management. I mean, I want to emphasise, although deliberate labour shortages were a bad thing and actually having access to immigrant labour and so forth is what the economy definitely needs. But, you know, it's good that labour now has the power to sort of ask for stuff back. Yeah, I mean, we all talk about the cost of living in this little bit, and it is it is a poverty issue. The Joseph Roundtree Foundation estimates that 7.3 million low-income households went without essentials like a warm home or food or toiletries. And that's between May and October, those are in the summer months. It also estimates that almost 6 million people are going hungry regularly or having to cut down on or skip meals. And yet for all this, the political cut-through is quite limited. Yeah. You, you, there are a lot of papers we simply don't hear about it at all. Has the past decade acclimatised us to the idea that the cost of living is high and people at the bottom of the pile are going to have to bear it and government is not going to do anything for them? I do hope not, is, the, is my slightly weak answer there, that you know we saw the backlash against their refusal to listen to Marcus Rashford about free school meals in 2020, where people thought, come on, that's unreasonable. Surely people should be able to feed their kids at a time like this. The trouble is when the labour market's tight, when it looks like there are a lot of jobs out there, I do think that people's natural sympathy to the idea that you need support from the state goes down a little bit. And there's not enough sort of regular sympathy for the plight of people who are not often juggling lots of different responsibilities at once. So, yeah, I mean... I, I, I don't think Labour is going to swallow all of the Tory welfare settlement, like this welfare cap where they try to keep spending below a certain level. But at a time when there's a massive fiscal crisis, I don't think they're going to get relief for a little while. Now, you mentioned our third point earlier, mortgages and housing. This is going to be huge this year because, as you mentioned, 1.6 million fixed rate mortgage deals are going to end early in 2024. People will move on to a new rate based around an interest rate, which could well be in the area of 5.25%, which is what we've got mm. at the moment. That's an additional £240 a month for the average home. Uh, housing costs and Black Monday killed the major government. Yeah. How do you see this one playing out here? 
It won't be as bad as back then because but in comparison, several factors are different. I think there was a lot more negative equity back then. There was a lot more people seeing the massive house price rises of the late 80s and sort of borrowing against it. And then, and the interest rate shock then was something extreme, like from 7% up to sort of 12 or 15 in a relatively short amount of time. So I think that people are simply less exposed and the, the rise in interest rates is not quite as sharp. So it might end up being two, two or three percent more. And also, finally, because we had a financial crisis since and the behaviour of the banks came under the microscope and, and politicians, to be fair, really had a go at them, banks will not be going after people on foreclosing and repossessing houses. Like There was a massive repossession crisis going on all the way through those major years. And that really cut through on the doorstep and that really cut through to voters. And I just don't think we'll see that again. And 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 that kind of forced selling then makes the whole situation worse. So I think in a way we've moved on to a better housing market. It's still going to be awful for the people affected, but it won't be, I don't think it'll be a big economic political issue. Well, I mean, fair enough, but that was 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah. And what people will see now is my mortgage has just gone up to £240 yeah. a month uh, on average. And I can't see why. And, you know, we've had a government in power yeah. for 13 years, which... Uh, oh, they'll get blamed. There's yeah. no doubt about it. In fact, I saw today a fantastic uh, thread from YouGov yeah. about who supports the Conservative Party. The only group of people by kind of housing tenure who support the Conservatives, unless it's by 26 to 22, are the people who own their houses outright. The ones who are borrowing with a mortgage, I think... From recollection, it was something like 16 to 38 or something that Labour yeah. were beating the Conservatives. People will blame higher mortgage rates, whether it's fair or not, on the government. And particularly after what Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng did in autumn 2022, they're going to say high yeah. mortgage rates, Conservative mismanagement. It will be a very easy message to be attacking the government with. You tend to look at housing purely through mortgages, which is incredibly unfair because it, the, the actual crisis is in, in rental. Rental costs are rising faster than has ever been recorded. Yeah. The median monthly rent in England between April 2022 and March 2023 was £825. That's a, that's a year ago, what it is now, God knows. ONS recorded a 5.5% rise in rents towards the end of August. This is young buyers getting further and further away from A, ever buying a house, and yeah. therefore B, ever turning into a Conservative voter. It's bad politics as well as unjust, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think there, there are longer-term Conservative thinkers like Robert Colville, who's in charge of a, their major think tank, the Centre for Policy Studies, so are absolutely hysterical about the need for Conservatives to be associated with building more houses in order to address that. I would say 5.5% rent, that's about the same amount as wages have gone up. So part of the reason right. rent is going up is a lot of people People are earning more money and landlords being in a position of power because in places there just hasn't been any building are able to scoop all of that. So what's happening is that people are getting that pay rise they think they deserve and it's all going straight to their landlord, which is a terrible, terrible message. And as you say, they then can't save for the very expensive equity they need to put into the house. Yeah. I mean, if you're renting, rent now accounts nationally for more than 28% of your average pre-tax earnings. And if you're in London, it's 40%. Yeah. 40% yeah. of your pre-tax earnings. And you hear, going on rent. And it's becoming a really big economic issue. I mean, I speak to major international companies who say things like, well, we can't really bring people to come and live in the capital. And we know that this is the fantastic place to have a software outfit, for example. And, yeah. uh, and you know, it's just impossible to get in and out or to stay here. Yeah. So Labour are promising to build 1.5 million houses over five years. Obviously, that's not going to materialise immediately in, t in 2024. They're looking at developing a mix of brown and greenfield. 
Obviously, this will be hugely controversial. There'll be a lot of questions about it, particularly how they afford it. What do you know so far about Labour's immediate housing plans? Again, because we are into an election year. Is that, is that one and a half million state-built homes or just that's what they will allow to be built by everyone, private or public? I think it's definitely the latter. Yeah, because one and a half million, that's 300,000 a year. And that's a bit above the trend rate. But to put it in context, there's about, I don't know, 25 million houses in the in the, in the country, may, maybe 30 million. And uh, so, in, in other words, it's um, just a, a few percentage points more to the overall housing stock. So economic theory would suggest that degree of building might lower the overall level of the house house prices by one or two percent but it might not not enough to really shift the dial i mean it'd still be welcome what would be really make a big difference is if they're affordable housing in other words yeah. putting a load of mansions that you can only afford if you've got like 700 grand free doesn't really help people if it's a lot of like social housing like was built after the war that might directly affect the people who really need it so i think it depends very much on where it is and what kind of houses they are affordable housing that would be great and that could really make a difference Well, it could all be immaterial when the robots rise and destroy us. Number two concern for the economy this year is what are advances in AI and technology going to mean for the economy? PricewaterhouseCooper has predicted that AI is going to boost all sectors by 10% and services by 21%. Well, these are very, very abstract numbers. Yeah. They're revenue. They're not jobs. Then you know, they're not sort of uh, employment. I mean, if we take that at face value, 21%, if that means boost, in other words, like actual economic value, all of our jobs become sort of 20%. I mean, it filters down eventually. 20% richer because of these amazing chatbots. I don't really believe it. Yeah, or 20% richer because they've laid off all the humans. Yeah, I mean, slightly different. Yeah, and um, what bugs me about, I mean, we've all played with these things now, which is um, which is great. I, mean, I love sort of asking an AI chatbot riddles or asking for a bit of travel advice and so forth. But for me right now, it just feels like enhanced search. And we've had search for ages and search has been fantastic, but it hasn't really boosted the economy. It hasn't, it might have replaced some jobs. Maybe we used to send people off into libraries to sort of riffle through encyclopedias yeah. and so forth. But if you want to know what it's going to do for 2024, there will be some massive economic effects because you need incredibly expensive and incredibly brilliant microchips to make these things work. And that has been enough to drive the market valuation of one of the companies concerned, NVIDIA, that makes the, the top-end chip to a trillion-dollar valuation. So it has huge effects. People are investing huge amounts of money in order to drive these very, very expensive models. And there's no doubt it's going to affect a lot of white-collar work in all sorts of ways that we probably can't anticipate. I don't think it's going to change the trajectory of the overall economy for the reason that I think most of the really big problems we need to get ourselves out of this hole are physical rather than like white collar, if only we could make the office work a little bit better yeah. or, or sack a few junior researchers. I don't think that's the real problem. We've got problems with like energy, with land use, with, um, you know, with the human beings you need to run the healthcare system and social care. And I don't think AI is yet dealing with those things. So I don't think we're mostly going to feel it in our lives uh, it, we're going to feel it in a few office blocks, though. Yeah, it is strange that neither the government nor the Labour Party seems to have a position on how to integrate and use AI for the betterment of the country. Sunak's approach seems to be: Can I get a job with Elon Musk after I'm thrown out of Number Ten by sitting down with him for a chat? He's dead keen on the whole subject. I mean, to be fair to him, he organised that massive conference in Bletchley Park, got a lot of the right people turning up. I think um, Kamala Harris, for example, from the US, a lot of the real sort of luminaries of the AI world came along. And then it was all a bit distracted by him having that rather sort of excruciating chat with Elon at the end, which wasn't really meant to be any part of the, the overall conference. 
relevance. The, the, the bigger issue, though, is they, they had that big chat and then concluded from it that they need to have a further set of sort of meetings and committees and structures and so forth because they don't want to over-regulate it because they don't yet know what they're dealing with. So mm. right now it's like everyone's, everyone has spotted that this is a really interesting issue. Nobody's quite worked out how to deal with it. Finally, yeah. from the hazy future to the very, very immediate, the number one issue, what is an incoming government going to do when there is, to use the old, old phrase, thank you, Liam Byrne, no money? I think, I mean, the first thing they're going to need to do, in my view, is really ratchet up that message, not so much about the money, but about the scale of the mess they found, in that they need the public to understand we have got a massive repair job to do. We have had either negligent or actively destructive government for a long time. And these are the following problems. We've got this problem in the railway system, this problem in the health system, this problem in, in sort of local government. And all of these things they need to make really vivid and nail down, like that letter was used by uh, George Osborne and others endlessly. They need to be doing that even more, but in a multifaceted way because it's about public services mostly. Yeah. And say, look, we need to fix this. And the reason we're doing this difficult thing is because of this mess. And by the time the voters are bored of it, they will finally heard it. And I think that's the first couple of years is going to just have to be what a mess, what a mess, what a mess. That's what we're fixing. Yeah. I mean, the, the big stick that's being used to beat Labour at the moment is the 28 billion green investment fund, which has already been kind of trimmed and, and, and cut back. The environment that this this Labour government, touch wood, will be entering is very different from the one that the Blair government entered. Yeah. The economy was actually, you know, the, the, the major medicine had kind of worked. The economy yeah. was in recovery. There was options and there was money to spend. They're inheriting ruin, yeah. but we'll still need to finance things, not just $28 billion of, of green investment. Do we yet have an inkling of how they intend to do that? Are there ways and means in a high interest rate uh, environment when our country has not covered itself in glory in the international markets? I mean, part, partly I think they're, they're just hoping things turn up a little bit. We've been hit by so many negative shocks that it would only take one positive shock and, and the curve suddenly looks 30, 40 billion pounds better at like four or five years out. Some of it is... It would be only human to assume that McCorber-like something will turn up sooner or later. On that £28 billion, there will be the natural sort of uh, treasury sneakiness you get where they'll say, well, look, in that £28 billion, we're already spending 12 You can redefine yeah. that. So it's in fact only sort of 16 And that's at the end of the term. It won't be adjusted for inflation. So in fact, it'll only feel like 10 or £12 billion. Mm. And that's actually about half the difference between one OBR forecast and the next. So in the end, they're going to say it's no biggie. And actually, it's the sort of thing that we can easily afford to do because we need to be doing this anyway because some of it is refurbishing housing stock and we can get people to help pay for that. There'll be all sorts of ways to be flexible about it. And there are other things like... They could they could be a little harsher on people's bills, for example. Everyone says we need to invest more in the water industry. Well, off what might be given the job of being the, the baddies to say, look, your bills are going to have to rise by 10 or 20%, and that way you get all these reservoirs and sewage cleanup and so on. And there'll be a, an almighty row, but the government might try and position itself the right side of that and say, well, look, this is because the Conservatives didn't invest in it or something. So there'll be like a variety of sneaky techniques used to sort of encourage people to understand that they need to invest now if they want to get good things later. And I think with enough sort of political skill, it's not as hard as what Attlee had to do after the war mm. with sort of with rationing in, in, in full flight. They had to sort of, they nationalised all these industries and introduced the NHS. I, I think we do sometimes need to put some perspective around it. 
I'm wondering whether Labour should fight them next election on one or other of your two slogans there. Something will turn up yeah. or it's not as bad as after the war. Yeah, well, well <laughs> yeah, okay. I mean, they can pick either, pick either. <laughs> but I remember the, the 70s vaguely. It felt like everything was broken. And yeah. the money was running out and there was football hooliganism and rubbish yeah, and in the streets. And, we you thought know. it was going to be a fascist coup every, every five yeah, minutes. Yeah, yeah. And Wilson actually was convinced that somebody had tried to uh, yeah. have a coup. Well, he was working for the KGB, so he would say that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All course, that stuff. KGB agents, all the same. Yeah. Lord Lucan should have been the Prime Minister. That's what, that's yeah, what people wanted. Yeah, solid manifesto. But we digress. Yeah. So we've talked about five key areas. We've talked about how the economy will relate to the election. We've talked about the cost of living. We've talked about the huge mortgage bomb that's awaiting mm-hmm. uh, the government next year. AI and technology. And finally, what to do when there's no money. I'm going to ask you now, Giles, to make a rash prediction or two. All right. Draw it all together. What kind of economic year is 2024 going to be? And bear in mind, we will be playing this oh my in Lord. January 2025. I want you to imagine your Boris Johnson doing his two thumbs up a minute before COVID happened. What kind of year do you think it's going to be? I don't make me imagine I'm Boris Johnson. <laughs> um, I think um, it will be an election year. I, I think there'll be an election in October. <laughs> Bold there'll prediction. be a massive yeah. Labour gov- um, majority. Yeah. Um, I don't think anything the government tries to do will make much of a difference to that. I think that will generally make the sort of business environment feel better. Business is going to be relieved that they've got a sort of stable government that, and yeah. that might actually help things a little bit. I think a lot of other things are going to carry on being grim, like the geopolitics, Gaza and, and Ukraine and so forth. But we won't otherwise be hit by any further terrible shocks. And I think the economy is going to recover possibly even a little better than people expect because just because for that macabre reason, consumers are finally getting over all of the different shocks and are beginning to return to the shops. And and actually that some of the things that Hunter's done, I, I know this isn't normally the podcast to say this sort of stuff, I don't but the big business tax break is a really good thing and businesses might start investing. Some of the industrial strategy stuff that he does that I don't think the Prime Minister even allows him to talk about much because it's not their vibe. Mm. But their advanced manufacturing plans are good. Their sort of technology plans are quite good. I think Labour will quietly keep those things going. And right. and actually we might start getting a sort of vaguely sort of sane and competent kind of long-term business environment out of this. So I reckon not a bad year, not a bad year. Vaguely sane and competent. I, I can deal with that. Yeah, vaguely sane and competent would be your third slogan to stick up there. <laughs> Giles, thanks so much. Great talking to you. It's been a pleasure. It's too late. He said it now. So we'll reconvene here in January 2025 to see how that all went. I've been Andrew Harrison. Thanks for listening to The Bunker. If you like this edition, we've got explainers, untold stories and thought-provoking bite-sized politics podcasts every weekday. So follow us on your favourite app. And if you're looking for a good investment in 2024, why not support us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month? Early editions with no ads, plus stylish mugs and t-shirts too. All of these things can be yours, plus the warm glow of supporting independent podcasting. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. The Bunker was written and presented by Podmasters Group Editor Andrew Harrison. The Managing Editor was Jacob Jarvis. The Producer was Eliza Davis Beard, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. Music was by Kenny Dickinson, and artwork was by James Parrott. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>